Welcome to the Story Church Podcast. The Story Church Podcast is the official podcast of the Story Church Project, which focuses on redesigning Adventism from tradition to mission. Hey, what's up, everybody? It is Pastor Marquis here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. And I'm super excited. I always am, right? I always start out by saying I'm super excited. I suppose I'm just excited about just about everything that I share on here. And this week, I'm looking at how to create a church that connects with secular culture. Now, this is a big one for me because I am currently, as I speak, in the process of planting a new church here in the Perth area where I work designed for reaching secular culture. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you guys something really amazing that um, that I've been interacting with in the last week and that has inspired this current article that, um, that I've published and that I'm also recording as a podcast. Now, what I'm talking about is another article and it was written by Faith Hill, who's the assistant editor to The Atlantic. Uh, and the article was titled, or is titled, They Tried to Start a Church Without God, For a While It Worked. That's the name of the article, all right? So I want you guys to check that out. If you go to the storychurchproject.com and you look at the latest article by the title, How to Create a Church That Connects with Secular Culture, uh, you will find the link to it there. If not, just Google it. They tried to start a church without God for a while it worked, and that is Faith Hill, The Atlantic. Now, what Faith does in this article is she traces the demise of the secular church movement, which despite starting with a huge bang in 2012, it's already started dying off. Now, here's the thing that I find really interesting about this article, though, is that Hill doesn't simply explore the secular church movement from a historical perspective, but she actually offers her own observations about the trend and its future. And her overall point is that for this trend to succeed, these secular churches, they need to do a better job of imitating religion. I'm quoting her there, right? They need to do a better job of imitating religion. And so what she does, and this is why I love this article, and I'm so excited about this, this uh, episode this week, is that she actually, in this article, she hands the church the keys to connecting with secular culture on a silver platter. So it's so cool, guys. It's absolutely amazing. Now, if you have not had a chance, I'm going to summarize the article, but please, Go back and actually read the whole article because, you know, I'm just one guy and I'm only going to catch a few things from the article. And so I'd love for you all to read the article and then comment on the blog or, or um, on Facebook or whatever and let me know, hey, here are some things I saw in the article that you didn't mention in your in your blog or in your podcast that I think is really important too. Because I'm not going to catch everything, guys. I, I only caught a few things. And I'm sure there's so much more in this amazing article. Now, for those who are entirely unfamiliar with the secular church movement, it was essentially an attempt to give secular people an alternative to church, right? So Hill describes it this way. I quote Hill, uh, members gather on Sundays, sing together, listen to speakers, and converse over coffee and donuts. Meetings, uh, yeah, meetings, sorry, are meant to be just like church services, but without God, end quote. So that's basically what the secular church movement was. Now, once again, uh, when it started off, it looked super strong. It started around 2012. Um, and not only did they grow really fast, 
in their early years. But as Hill herself indicates in this article, they were heavily covered by media outlets, right? It was like, it was like they wanted, you know, the media wanted this thing to succeed. <clears throat> so for example, this, this article called The Hot New Atheist Church. It was one of the hit articles published in 2013 at the Daily Beast. And, and then you, BBC, The Economist, HuffPost, The Insider, The Guardian, Vox, Salon, and Wikipedia <laughs> were, were among the other media outlets that reported on this phenomenon. And the numerical growth was so impressive early on that HuffPost noted that the number of secular assemblies had doubled in a single weekend in 2014. I'm quoting uh, Hill there again. Um, doubled in a single weekend. I mean, those of us who are familiar with the book of Acts, we're going to see some parallels here, right? Like the early church began to sweep into the culture of the day. Luke reports incredible numerical growth, like 3,000 in one day. We read in Acts 2.47, another 5,000 plus. It looks like it happened overnight. We read Acts 4.4. And then there's multitudes, right? Like multitudes in quotes, which for me, I think that's like there were so many that Luke couldn't be bothered guesstimating anymore, right? So he just says multitudes. Um, and, and as the apostles continue their mission, we read this in Acts 5.14, and, and we read other passages, um, you know, where it says, like, the Lord was adding daily those who were being saved, right? So this is explosive numerical growth. But here's the thing. The parallels between the early church's explosive growth and the secular church movement, they kind of sort of end there. Because what Hill does is she takes us on our journey to the next phase of the secular church's growth, which was marked by uh, pretty much no growth. <laughs> so let me quote her again, um, Hill writing here in her article, even as the growth of nuns has revved up, it revved up in the intervening years, she writes, the growth of secular congregations hasn't kept pace. After a promising start, attendance declined and nearly half the chapters have fizzled out. Wow. I mean, that's crazy, right? Like the growth of nuns has continued, which by the way, if you're completely new to this conversation, you're like, what do you mean the growth of nuns? I'm not talking about Catholic nuns, right? I'm talking about N-O-N-E-S. These are religious nuns, people who identify with nothing, right? Um, they've increased ever since the secular church movement started, but the secular congregations, they haven't kept pace with the increase. And so... They've been fizzling out. So to the contrary, though, like when we look around this, the Christian church continued to spread, even though it faced similar challenges, right? Despite being persecuted as well and scattered, nothing was able to stop it. And the impact was so strong that the governing powers of the day described its leaders as men who have turned the world upside down. And then they freaked out that they had, quote unquote, come here too, right? Uh, that's Acts 17, 6. So my question is like, why the distinction, okay? Why did the secular church movement collapse? And here's where I wanna offer a few insights from what I picked up from the article. And again, please read it because I would love to know what I missed as well. So here's, here's uh, three insights. Number one, it didn't offer enough. Now, what do I mean by that? Hill points out some interesting perspectives. For example, she notes that this experience proved that, and I quote, building a durable community of non-believers is more complicated than just excising God, right? Excising meaning like getting rid of, right? It's kind of a weird word. You might not be familiar with it. So I throw it, I, you know, throw in an explanation. Um, so that's her point, right? Building a durable community believer, it turns out is way more complicated than just getting rid of God, right? So later she adds this, um, the yearning for belonging is not enough in itself to create a sense of home, end quote. Now, as her exploration continues, she references religious scholar Linda, Linda Wood, Woodgid, Woodgid? 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I feel like so uneducated right now. It's like wood and then G-E-A-D, wood geed. Anyways, I'm just going to move on. Uh, now, Linda is from, uh, you know, she's a religious scholar at Lancaster University in Great Britain. And this is what she said. I quote, even more challenging than the logistical barriers are the psychological ones. Meeting in a building with the same group of people every week. I don't think there's any natural need for that. End quote. Now, Linda is entirely correct, all right? And I'm going to probably touch on this. Not probably. I will a little bit more later on. Here's the thing. There is no natural need for meeting in a building repeatedly week after week with the same folks. In fact, um, later on, I'm going to sort of revisit this and, um, and I'm going to explore or I'm going to point out that one of the reasons I think this movement failed is because it attempted to copy the modern church, Okay. And the modern church is a system of church that is not only unbiblical, but it's entirely unnatural and unnecessary. But more on that later. So, wink, wink. Okay, number two, fragmentation. Now, Linda Woodgeed, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to stop that. Um, she does believe that community is super important. But her overall point is that, and I quote, you can't just make meet for the sake of community itself. You need a very powerful motivating element to keep people coming, something that attendees have in common, end quote. And herein lies another one of the movement's major issues. Hill is clear that the secular church movement is plagued by a sense of fragmentation in which, quoting Hill, different groups with different priorities, end quote, are gathering together and failing to find common ground outside of their dislike of God or institutional church. So in some ways, it, it seemed like the only thing that attendees had in common was that they were against or what they were against. And and their this idea, this dislike of anything is what Alan Cooperman, director of the of religion research at Pew Research Center refers to, and Hill quotes him in the article as well. So I'm quoting, Hill's quoting of him here. Um, he refers to this disliking of anything as the least effective social glue, the dullest possible mobilizing cry, the weakest affinity principle that one can imagine, end quote. And so this is a problem because you got a group of people sitting in a room who are just there because they dislike something. It's a very weak reason for people to come together, right? And so that fragmentation, um, they basically, the only thing they shared was that they dislike things and they didn't have anything stronger holding them together was another reason why the movement has failed. Um, and number three, um, spectatorship. Now here's the other significant problem the young movement faced, um, logistics, right? In their attempts to copy the typical Western church, the secular church organizers found that they were having to put on, I quote, a big show on a regular basis. That's from the article as well. Uh, I don't think that's Hill herself. She's quoting one of the organizers. But yeah, you get to the article, you can see it all there. Now, this created a logistical and financial nightmare, right? Because bands had to be booked and chairs had to be set up and food had to be organized. And some leaders, Hill points out, told me they're trying to make those weekly meetings so interesting, so entertaining, so powerful that people will keep showing up. Now, Hill later describes how and I quote once more, organizers hope that other adults will see how wonderful it is to be accepted and accepting, to sing Bon Jovi badly in an abandoned church building, or hear a talk about quantum physics in a local Y with other like-minded and familiar people, and that having had these experiences, they'll keep showing up. 
end quote. Now, it didn't work, but the thing that I find fascinating about this is that it sounds so much like our churches, doesn't it? It was this need to put together a show each weekend that, <clears throat> and I hope I pronounced this one right, Anne Claysen, one of the secular church organizers identified by Hill, referred to as unsustainable. Hill then quotes another organizer, Justina Walford, who pointed out that in putting on this weekend show, you're competing with hundreds of other events at the same time and getting enough people to show up just felt impossible. End quote. Now, once again, the tragedy of this entire scenario, in my opinion, is that in their attempt to create an alternative to the local church, secular church organizers immediately resorted to a show. Now, what this demonstrates with ironic tragedy is that in the eye of the secular church culture, church is essentially a well-oiled show. It may have other elements, but when it boils down to the essence, that's basically what you're trying to recreate. And... That's pretty whack. Now, what this means for Adventist churches. As the article nears its close, we encounter a variety of elements and pillars which are purported to exist within local church congregations that gives them a sense of meaning and thus a greater likelihood of, su of success not present in secular churches. So some of the key pillars secular church organizers have pointed out are, for example, the presence of costly sacrifice. What they mean by this is that in order to join a typical sort of Christian local church, you have to give up things, right? And sometimes we Christians, we don't like that, right? We're like, oh, we shouldn't ask people to give up things, you know, and barriers and things like that. Um, we should make it easy and smooth. Well, it's interesting because these organizers, these secular church organizers actually found the opposite. They found that you have to give up things in order to join the typical local church as opposed to secular churches, which are basically communities, and I'm quoting Hill again here, without costly rituals, ones that let you do what you want. And so what they found is that it's actually the costly rituals that make a community of faith meaningful for people. When you belong to a community of faith that doesn't have any costly rituals, it doesn't mean as much to you. So it's very interesting. I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, other elements pointed out are the need for meaningful rituals, um, stories, transcendence, and a sense of sacredness attached to the rituals, traditions, and ideals, something that was completely missing in secular churches. Now, I'm quoting here anthropologist Richard, Richard Sossis. Hope I pronounced that one right. It looks like everybody in his article seems to have a bizarre last name. I don't know why. Um, but Hill quotes him in the article, and this is what he says. The irony is that to get away from religion, they may need to recreate it. End quote. Now, Sanderson Jones, leader of one of the more successful secular churches named Sunday Assembly, has also developed, and I'm quoting the article here again, developed a framework of five core components in any congregation. Community life, transformational gatherings, personal growth, helping others and changing the world, right? It's five little keys, structural keys that one can find in just about any modern church with business-driven strategic models. And so they're using these with the hope that it will get them to thrive. And so far, some of them are holding on, but again, thriving, not really. Now, here's the thing. The one thing that the secular church movement can't get around, and this is one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this article and, and pondering it for, for this episode, 
Um, it's, it's what Cooperman referred to as the real, and I quote, overwhelming number of people who were raised religious but have now left, report being pretty content, end quote. So this sense of contentedness is not something that the secular church has been able to break through. And it's also something our local Adventist churches have likewise been unable to overcome. And the reason is simple. Our churches essentially run the same as a secular church. They revolve around a show with a few extra elements like standards, right, sprinkled on top. But overall, we're not that different. Now, someone might listen to this might be like, what do you mean we're not that different? We talk about God. Yes, we do talk about God. But here's my challenge in this week's episode. The way we run church today, we talk about God. Yeah, but do we really need him? I mean, think about it. If we did not have the Holy Spirit, our church services would still run as normal. We have our church manual. We have our traditions, our traditional structures, and we have you know, a little bit of financial backing to keep us ticking without God's help for decades to come. So is it no wonder that the Growing Young Research Project found, and I quote from the book, that from 2007 to 2014, mainline Protestant adults slid from 41 million to 36 million, a decline of approximately 5 million, end quote. And this is something that the authors summarize by saying, and I quote again from the book Growing Young, no major Christian tradition is growing in the U.S. today. A few denominations are managing to hold steady, but that's as good as it gets, end quote. Now, what is the solution? <laughs> uh, here's the thing, I have no idea. I don't have all the answers. Uh, I don't even pretend to have some of them, but... In this article, I do feel, like I said at the very beginning, that Hill gives us at least three keys to connecting effectively with secular cultures. Keys that I think we'd be pretty dumb to ignore. So here they are. Um, and, and I'm going to wrap up after this. Number one, in order to reach the culture, we have got to move away from a spectator show. As pointed out by Woodgeed, the thing we call church is simply not natural. We don't need it. It is no wonder that most people who attend church would actually not experience any major change in significance of purpose if they suddenly stopped attending. Sure, you might miss it because you're kind of used to it and your friends, but that's not the same as undergoing an existential crisis if you stopped going. Now, on the other hand, if the Apostle Paul disconnected from church, think about that, his entire life would have been turned upside down. This is because church was not a show for Paul. It was a way of being, a calling that transcended organized gatherings and redesigned his entire identity. Paul did not go to church. In fact, none of the early Christians did. Instead, they were the church. And this impacted the way they interacted with society, with politics, with relationships, and just about any other aspect of reality. And when they did gather, the gatherings were simple, revolving around eating, reading the word, and celebrating communion. There was no show. Now, sadly, most of our churches today revolve around a two-hour show that is exhausting to organize week after week. And my suggestion is that if secular people can't put on a show for secular people that secular people will want to keep going back to, then we sure aren't going to do it. It's time to redesign our churches away from revolving around the show to fostering true and meaningful relationships and discipleship. In short, I reckon like we need to offer more and maybe the way that we do that is to offer less. 
less entertainment, less spoon feeding, and less lectures. More relationships, more time in the word, and more prayer. Number two, in order to reach the culture, we should not shy away from costly sacrifice. Now, many modern churches in their attempt to reach the culture have assumed that we need to get rid of standards, right? However, what even secular people are starting to realize is that what doesn't cost you something is simply not valuable. As a result, I think we need to like kind of move away or forego any temptation to make following Jesus easy. Love is going to cost you something, bottom line, and Jesus is going to cost you everything. And we shouldn't shy away from that in order to reach people. They might like us more, yeah, and they might even be a bit more comfortable in our church if we do that, but that doesn't mean that they will find our faith meaningful because meaning is found in sacrifice. Now, of course, this can be interpreted in many ways, so I want to be clear. This is not a pass for ultra-conservative Adventists with their ridiculous and unreasonable standards and judgmental attitudes to run around saying, see, we told you. Because equally true is that many of the secular people who have abandoned church have done so because church was full of ridiculous rules that caused spiritual and spiritual damage and emotional damage and it nurtured exclusivism and narcissism and elitism. And the recent experience with the former fundamentalist pastor turned atheist Joshua Harris is evidence enough of this. So the call here, I think, is for us to return to a love ethic, a balanced and centrist view of sacrifice that actually beautifies the world while demanding radical obedience from us. Number three, in order to reach the culture, we must emphasize our unity in Jesus. Now, there's one thing missing in this entire article that Hill wrote um, if there's one thing anyway that's missing, it's, it's how the main glue that kept the early church alive was the union that all the believers have in the resurrected Christ. In Jesus, Paul says we are one. He has removed the walls of hostility and brought us together. The church, of course, is like far from perfect, but there is this sense in which it is Jesus in his broken body that holds us together and keeps us moving despite our natural human tendency to mess things up. You can remove everything else and this one thing will remain. It's no wonder then that Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's John 13, 35. Somehow our unity in Jesus is an incredibly powerful key that keeps the church alive despite its human weakness. And we need to pursue this unity more. In creating churches designed to connect with the secular world, we must demonstrate to them something they cannot find anywhere else, a unity that celebrates the agape love of God and the triune nature of his being. And as people see the supernatural union and love exhibited among us, I believe they'll be drawn to the Jesus that it all points back to. Anyways, look guys, those are some of my thoughts for now. Like I said before, there is so much more to say about this amazing article. Um, Hill will probably never hear this podcast, uh, but if she ever did, uh, I would just like to say thank you for such an insightful piece. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I want to encourage you guys, please read it because I want you to share your thoughts as well, right? Drop some comments on the Facebook link where this is posted, on the Story Church Project 
article link where this is posted. Um, drop some comments because I'd love to know what amazing insights I've missed from I'm sure there's so much more. Um, and, and, and how we can embrace those elements to create local Adventist churches that truly connect 